Good morning again, Woodhaven. All right. What not to do when you are um, preaching and you get to a church and you call the church by the wrong name. Not good. Not good at all. I don't think my my kids are going to let me live that one down. That will be forever cataloged into their minds. I'm sure that'll be a topic topic of conversation tonight. Um, certainly an honor and a privilege to be with you all today. And uh, I'm just grateful for what, the, for what the Lord has done in preparing the way for myself and my family to be here and to be part of what is happening at Woodhaven. And uh, before we begin our time, let's begin with a, a word of prayer. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we love you. And uh, we're grateful, God, that uh, you, your great love has been demonstrated, communicated to us through the death of Jesus. And uh, I just pray, God, that uh, as we are diving into your word, help us, Father, to be attentive. Help us to zero in on your truth, God, and help us to, 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 our, to adorn ourselves with it. Help us, God, in this time. Uh, as we as we hear your word, as we consider what 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 Luke has detailed for us in Acts 17, and uh, we consider the topic of our determination to make the gospel known, Father, position us, empower us, enable us for that task. I pray that in Jesus' name, Amen, Amen. Again, it's a privilege to be with you all this morning, and. Over the past two weeks, my family and I, we have uh, received just such a warm welcome from many individuals who I do not know the names, right? I'm, I'm still learning names. I was talking with Gene this morning. We had a good conversation. And at the end of the conversation, I said, can you tell me your name again? Gene. I will never forget Gene's name. But again, we've been um, extremely encouraged and uh, we definitely certainly feel welcomed uh, within the past two weeks. And I've been asked on a number of occasions as to, you know, how, how are you settling in with the move from Virginia to Michigan? I don't think you ever settle in. No, but I say, I, I tell folks that it's a process. It's certainly a process. Um, by God's grace, we'll definitely settle. But it's certainly a process in and of itself. And um, I will say this. We have gone through the initiation uh, of Van Horn and Allen, the train that resides there. We've gone through that initiation. And um, that, that, that's a, that is a means of sanctification there, I tell you. That, that is a sanctification builder. It really is. There are some, there are some positives, though, with uh, the train being strategically placed right where we live. Um, you know, if I'm ever late to a church meeting, Here's, I, I, I legitimately have an excuse, right? Seriously, I can blame it on the train. Yeah, yeah. Now, some of you are going to get what I just said. A little, milli, a little bit of a milli vanilli there, right? Blaming it on not the rain, but the train. Blame it on the train. Yeah, yeah. Uh, again, sanctifying experience. This morning, what we're going to do is dive into uh, a topic that many Christians have wrestled through for thousands of years, and it has everything to do with the Christian's response or the Christian's posture in engaging culture. And when I say culture, here's, here's what I'm pointing to. 
culture has more to do with the values, the traditions, the ideas, and the institutions that are celebrated and embraced by people that reside within a particular context. So that's what I'm, that's what I'm, that's what I'm hinting at. And what we find often within the broader conversation in evangelicalism on the topic of cultural engagement, uh, uh, there, uh, often it, the, the, the conversation becomes hijacked by these hardline positions. And one of the positions can be that of syncretism, right? And these are individuals that would say, uh, well, we need to, um, you know, there's some conformity to the values of the culture, uh, we need to accept and celebrate any and everything that that exists within the culture. But then there, there's another hardline position of separatism. And these are individuals that would say, well, I, we, we've got to remove ourselves from culture. And not only that, but we need to escape the influence and the appearance of anything that resembles the culture. I can't use Google. Right. As a matter of fact, instead of car, instead of driving a car, I'm going to get into uh, I'm going to get into a wagon and let a horse pull me down the road. But wait a second. Where did that wood come from? <laughs> Culture. But again, when we think about these these hardline positions, there are theological pitfalls that are inherent within the uh, within the positions themselves. And when we think about just the positions being carried out to their full extent, here's what tends to happen. It renders us ineffective to actually engaging culture. And I think we can all agree that within our Western context, that culture in and of itself is changing. I'm from Virginia. You all know that. Uh, I can say the way that I grew up in the 80s and the 90s and the early 2000s is a little different from the way in which my, my kids are growing up and some of the things that they're exposed to, some of the ideas and the traditions it's changing. Some of that is for good, right? But some of it, much of it, it's highly questionable, and much of it is harmful, all right? What I don't want to do, I don't want you to think I'm, I don't want you to, I don't want you to think I'm demonizing culture, because I'm not demonizing culture, all right? And if, if you want to, like, have another conversation after this uh, sermon, we can certainly do that. I'm not demonizing culture at all, but the, the point that I'm making is that Things are changing. Culture is changing. Despite the, the mixed bag of culture, the contemporary issues that come with it, um, despite what's proximal to us. As Christians, we need to live in a way that pleases God. Regardless of the culture that God has placed us in, we need to be living in a way that pleases God. Whether the context is one of pluralism, heretical doctrines, one where there are warped and belligerent views on sexuality, whether there are warped views on personhood, warped views on justice and flourishing. We need to demonstrate biblical thinking in the totality of our living within a, within a fallen world. I'm going to say that one more time. We need to demonstrate biblical thinking within the totality of our living, not just on Sundays, the totality of our living in a fallen world, particularly as we are aiming to grow and mature in our determination to make the gospel known while engaging culture. And therein lies today's, uh, 
title, Determined to Make the Gospel Known. So if you have your Bible this morning, if you can turn with me to turn or swipe, speaking of culture, right? Turn or swipe. Turn with me to Acts 17, and um, we're going to read verses 16 through 32. We'll read through that, and then we're going to dive into our sermon. All right, Acts 17, starting at verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicureans and the Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, "What what does this babbler have to say, wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know this new teaching uh, that you're presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenian, now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, "Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious." For I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown. This I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it. Being the Lord of heaven and earth. Does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands. As though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one, one, one man from every nation. Let me say that again. He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. Having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of the dwelling place. That they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet... He's not, he's, he's actually not far from each one of us for in him, we live and move and have our being as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring being then God's offspring. We ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, We will hear you again about this. I'm going to read the uh, 33 and 34. So Paul went out from their midst. Verse 34. 
but some men joined him and believed, among whom are also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Amen. Amen. All right. Pray with me one more time. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for what you have um, just communicated in and through your word about yourself and how you have said much in your word about, about Jesus. I pray, God, that this morning you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see. I pray, God, that we again would be listening, listening attentively to what you've communicated. I pray that your spirit would guide this time. I pray that in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. All right. So that was a, quite a long passage. You're welcome. Quite a long passage. And uh, it's interesting that Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he, he's detailing for us some events that basically led to Paul's time in Athens. Um, and now within the first 15 verses, I know we read from verse 16 to roughly 34, but within the first 15 verses, Paul is in Thessalonica, he's in Berea, and basically he has a run-in with some Jewish thugs, right? And yes, I did say thugs. He had a run-in with some Jewish thugs. If you don't believe me, just go back and look at verse 5 and 6 and verse 13 as well. But he has a run-in with some Jewish thugs. And that led to basically Paul just kind of rerouting and going up, over, or down to Athens. When, he, when, when, when Paul arrives at Athens, and I want to give you a, bit, a, a quick historical backdrop. This Athens is hundreds of years removed from like its, its golden age. Now, the golden age was in, was in uh, the 5th and 4th the 5th and 4th century B.C. And this was a time where it was said that Athens had no equal when it came to art and literature and philosophy and architecture. Uh, Athens was the epicenter, literally the epicenter of culture within its golden age. Its universities were called the Eye of Greece and the Mother of Arts. And it was also home to heavy hitters. Let's say heavy hitters. I'm talking about philosophers. Heavy hitters like Socrates and Plato. But it was also the adopted city of Aristotle, which is interesting. He had men like Epicurus and men like Zenos who frequented Athens as well. It said that from Athens, get this, stated that it was the epicenter of culture. It stated that from Athens came the direction that resulted in the activities of other parts of the world. You had your movers and your shakers right there at Athens. Now, when Paul arrives there, Athens is in the late afternoon of her glory. I was thinking about that this morning, thinking about that phrase, the late afternoon of, of, of her glory. And I was thinking, you know, if, if, if a husband were to, were to ever say that to his wife, I wonder what type of trouble would he, that, that he'd get into. Right? Sweetheart, how do, how do I look to, you know, you, you're in the late afternoon of, don't do that, man. Don't do that. Don't do that at all. But again, it's still a beautiful city, and it continues to wear the title of being the intellectual capital of the world. And Paul goes there. He arrives there. 
And what we're going to do today is we're going to look at how Paul is navigating cultural engagement. Because that's what he does when he gets there. And we want to look at his determination to make the gospel known. And we're going to consider kind of some three M's. I love alliterating, right? So we're going to consider his, his motivation, his method, and his mission. Again, we're going to consider his motivation in verse 16, his method in verses 17 through 21, and his mission in verses 22 on through 34. Let's look at Paul's motivation. Verse 16 reads, Now while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked uh, within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. And that's a that's interesting. Paul is waiting. His, his, his spirit is provoked. And that's a, the, the, this term prov, provoke is a unique term because what it conveys is that spiritually he was aroused. Spiritually he was, he was stirred up. Spiritually, for lack of better phrases, and to take a, a, a phrase from the culture, spiritually, he was turned up. Now, some of you are like, what is that? Just track with me. Spiritually aroused. Spiritually. Again, his spiritual interests were, were provoked. Spiritually turned up. And Paul wasn't in Athens just kicking rocks. Paul wasn't in Athens with his eyes wide shut. Paul was in Athens on mission. He was attentive and alert to the spiritual condition of that context. We read in verse 16, the city was full of idols. It was full of idols. So much so to the degree, and I want to speak a little bit about the idols, the idolatry within Athens. Uh, the uh, first century Roman author or the, the Roman writer Petronius, he says this about Athens. He says it was easier to find a God in Athens than a man. Right? That's some serious idolatry. Their idolatry was enshrined and, and, and erected throughout the city. And it, it permeated the art, the literature, the, philo the philosophy, the politics, their institutions. And Paul understood being at this beautiful city, this magnificent, magnificent city, this great city, he understood that Okay, yes, yeah, certainly there's idolatry that's in the mix. There's idolatry, idolatry that's present. He understood that, look, this, that's the basic problem of humanity in and of itself. Not just Athens. Obviously, we happen to be talking about Athens. But the basic problem of humanity, culture, in and of itself, it's idolatry. As it was true in Paul's day when he arrived in Athens, it's also true in our day that when there are ideas about God or denials, we'll say denials of God, uh, that are present within the culture, that are false, here's what they give shape to. They give shape to what we think and practice. And all of that was present within Athens. And I think what I find pretty fascinating about verse 16, and I haven't gone any further for a reason, because what's fascinating about this is that uh, while, while most individuals, when they arrived to this magnificent city, most would be in awe with the architecture. Most would be in awe with the brilliance that just, that just oozes from, from, from the minds of those who, who made the city what it was. Paul was not in awe of it. 
Paul was not in awe of it. And I'd like to say he, he assesses and he analyzes the city rightly. And he responds to it as a Christian. And I would encourage you, as you are engaging in culture, assess it rightly. Respond to it as a, as a Christian. I love what John MacArthur has to say about this. He says that when most individuals are drowned by the wonder of the culture, Paul looked beyond the cultural facade and he saw the reality of men's hearts. And I want to get to the motivation that, that Paul, oh, that's really tiny. Wow, that's very tiny. Can you guys see that? Oh, wow. <laughs> culture, right? <laughs> but consider the motivation that Paul that's, that's, stir, that's basically stirred up within Paul. He sees the lostness of men. There's certainly a human side. But he sees the lostness of men because he's preoccupied with the glory of God. We've got this human side, this divine side. Um, and again, that's his motivation. This pre, his motivation has everything to do with the preoccupation that he has with the glory of God. Now, I've got some questions for us to be thinking through as we consider Paul's motivation. And I think these questions are, are helpful for us. And I'm not going to actually post them because that's very small print. Um, but the first question is, how, how do you see your context and does it arouse spiritual interest? Right? Is, there, is there an arousal there? Second question is, have you become uh, desensitized and apathetic to the spiritual condition of your context? Have you become desensitized to it? All right, right here in the suburbs, the downriver area. Have you become desensitized to the spiritual condition that exists in this context? It's another question. Do you engage culture through a lens that brings into focus the, the lostness of men and the, the glory of God? I want to press a little further. Are you jealous for the name of God within the context that he's placed you in? Final question. Are you preoccupied with God's glory in your marriage and your families? What does that look like? Are you preoccupied with God's glory in your singleness? Are you preoccupied for God's glory in your vocation, in your schooling, in your relationships, in your retirement? Do you have a preoccupation for God's glory? In, in, in those areas. And again, when we consider Paul's motivation, he sees the lostness of men because he's preoccupied with the glory of God. Let's move on to Paul's method in verses 17 through 21. And this is a really neat section because when we consider his method, um, Luke is detailing Paul's intentionality to engage culture uh, because he, he systematically, literally systematically, he goes where people are. And I want to read verse 17. Verse 17 says, so he reasoned, and I don't want you to, I don't want you to uh, uh, miss that. He, he intentionally goes to reason in the synagogue with the Jews. He doesn't stop there. And the devote persons, um, he goes to the marketplace every day with those who happen to be there. He also encounters some philosophers, the Epicureans and the Stoics. And again, thinking through just the, the fact that Paul is systematically going where people are. He goes where people are. 
I would go on to say, you, we can't make the gospel known uh, when, it, when it comes down to engaging culture uh, without having some type of interface with people. We have to be interacting with people. And I know we live in a, in a society where we, we hashtag it up. We t- tweet Twitter. Everybody in Twitter? Okay, there we go, Twitter. We even do book face. Not Facebook, but book face. That's what we call it in our home. Book face. No, it's actually Facebook. We even do uh, Facebook and we Snapchat and we Instagram. And we've got a number of uh, social media platforms. Uh, but... You know, these platforms are certainly useful in engaging uh, cultural issues or just engaging people. They can certainly be useful. However, they they can never become a substitute for meaningful uh, interpersonal interaction. They can never be the substitute. Um, and what this means is that we've got to be willing to have a conversation with real people who who may not think or look like us or embrace what we value. And I love Paul's method, uh, how he strategically mixes it up with different people. And I want to I look again at, at, as to how this method unfolds. He's at the synagogue with the Jews in verse 17 and the devout persons. These are individuals that probably look like him. They probably have a similar upbringing, certainly, possibly a similar upbringing. Uh, these are individuals, if I could use a phrase from culture, these are individuals that are from around the way. He he knows them. He knows them. And again, these are Jews and Greeks who are following Judaism. It was it was Paul's custom to actually go and go and have some interfacing with his kinsmen. And then we see in verse 17, 18, then we got uh, these common citizens that he he meets in the marketplace. And I would say of these 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 common citizens When you think about what's happening in the marketplace, these are individuals that are steering the economy, right? They're definitely steering the economy. Uh, These are individuals also who may have had a different upbringing. Those who certainly possibly speak the language, but not just that language. But they, they, they may look and behave a little different. These are tradesmen and people going about their business, commercial people coming into the city with their goods to trade in the city square. Stay with me. And then we've got a third group, right? We've got folks that kind of look like them. Right? And we've got some folks that may not look like them. And then we've got, we've got uh, this third group of philosophers, the intellectual elite. These are, these are the individuals, I said that the, uh, uh, the group of the common citizens, they're moving the economy, right? The hard workers. I would say these individuals... They're they're framing the narrative for for society. We can certainly talk a little bit more about that, but they're framing the narrative for society. These are philosophers, again, in the the, uh, intellectual elite. These are individuals who I would say they they come from similar academic uh, institutions, and they had similar backgrounds as Paul did, but they have differing philosophical positions. Differing philosophical positions. And what I want to do is just kind of focus in on the, 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 the actual philosophers that were present. All right. We've got the, the, the Epicureans and the Stoics. And I have that posted for you. Uh, the Epicureans, they uh, derived their worldview from Epicurus. Uh, they denied God's existence. They believed that pleasure was the main purpose of life. 
they were true materialists. Their mantra was, I'm going to attain maximum amount of pleasure and a minimum amount of pain. I want to attain, again, this maximum amount of pleasure, but a minimum amount of pain. And then we've got the Stoics. And again, we're just kind of going through the profiles of these philosophers, these individuals that he encounters. They derive their worldview from Zenos. Uh, they would say, God is in you. Uh, you are God. God is everything. That cancels out anything technically being God, because if God is everything and you are God, there probably is no God. All right? That probably is no God. Um, they also believe that the events uh, of this world, they were determined by impersonal in, in, in uh, fate. And then lastly, they were proud fatalists. And I think this, this quick profile of the, the Epicureans and the Stoics, it's helpful because when we think about Paul's method and how he goes about navigating and just, just systematically engaging with real people, these, <clears throat> these, these individuals kind of present for us individuals that we could actually come across in our day and time. Right? We may come across a philosopher. Right? We may come across someone who's hard at work, on their grind, uh, kind of punching in day in, day out, that type of individual. He's moving the economy. And again, we may come across individuals who, who we would say, you know, that, that's my kinsman. There's, there's, there's a shared commonality that we have. Man, I know this individual because there are traditions that I've embraced, that they embrace, so on and so forth. But again, it gives us something to think about. And again, going back to Paul's method, he engages culture by going where people are and strategically mixing with different people in order to have gospel conversations. And the second part is something I think we should do before we move on and look at Paul's mission is we need to take some time with that said, we need to assess what I would like to call the rhythms of our intentionality and whether or not we're actually having gospel conversations. Are we being intentional? Are we actually going out there, interacting with individuals within the culture? We're being courageous and we're doing it in gospel-driven humility. Are we doing that? I'm going to move on to the final section. We're going to look at Paul's mission. We see this in verses 22 through 31. Um, We've covered Paul's motivation. We've seen his method. Now we're going to look at his mission. And I love what Luke states in verse 20. Uh, Paul is, he is invited by the culture's intellectual and philosophical elite. Um, and he's invited to Mars Hill, the Areopagus. And then we see in verses 22 through 23, he, he, he addresses what he observed uh, as pertained to their, their idolatry. The way in which he says it, he says uh, what he observed in the objects of their worship, particularly the worship ascribed to the unknown God. And I, I want you to, we want to take some time to just kind of walk through the elements of Paul's sermon. Okay? I want to walk through the elements of Paul's sermon. We look at verse 24. Before I even read through some of these elements, I love what the 20th century scholar F.F. Uh, F. Bruce says. He says, uh, as it pertains to Paul's sermon in this, in this section, he says, like biblical revelation itself, Paul's argument begins with God the creator of all, and it ends with God the judge of all. 
Well, let's, let's, let's walk through it. Verse 24, talks, it, it, it sheds light on the supremacy of God as the creator and the Lord of heaven and earth. If you don't believe me, let's just read it together. The God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth. Right? He doesn't live in temples made by man. Let's go through and look at the next section, verses 25 through 29. We see the sovereignty of God over humanity and nations, along with man's dependence on God for life and breath. And I love this section here because this section, it gives you this big God theology with a robust anthropology. And what I love about it as well is that it gets to the heart of what's wrong with humanity. Don't believe me? Okay, let's read it. Okay, here we go. Verse 25. Verse 25 says, Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives, gives to all men life and breath and everything. This is verse uh, 26. It says that he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. Here's that robust, that robust anthropology there having determined the allotted periods and the boundaries of the dwelling, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's not, act, he, he's, he's not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of their own prophets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Again, robust anthropology. Verse 29 reads, but... Being, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver. And again, I want to go back to what's at the heart of our, 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 our idolatry. At the heart of it is the fact that we don't seek after God. Right? We're not seeking after God. We should seek after God. Again, but we don't. How often throughout your, throughout your week are you thinking, man, I should be desiring the things of the Lord, but I'm not. If it wasn't for God's grace, you certainly would not. You could not. Right? But fallen humanity, individuals that haven't been redeemed by the blood of Jesus, they cannot and they do not seek after God, but they were on NPR and they were just waxing eloquent on CNN. No, if they're not redeemed, they will not, they cannot seek after God. But I just heard them on Fox News, heard them on this dope podcast. They cannot and will not if they are, if they haven't been redeemed by, by the blood of Jesus, if they haven't been given a heart of flesh, all right? And that transformation from that heart of stone. They cannot and they will not. We see in verse 30 and 31, we see the mercy and grace of God in calling us to repentance. Paul communicates the need to repent. And again, we're just kind of breaking down this sermon. There's the need to repent, certainly, absolutely. But why? Because God will judge the world through the man that he's appointed. Well, who is that man? Jesus, Jesus. Now, how do we know this and how can we, how can we be sure? Because of the resurrection, because of the resurrection, there's historical evidence for it. Absolutely. 
because of that historical ed, uh, ev- uh, evidence that exists. There's theological importance in the person and work of Christ. Paul is zeroing in, this, this sermon zeroes in on the gospel. I want to get to Paul's mission. Paul's mission was to strategically and intentionally infiltrate the culture and inject it with the knowledge of God. That's what he's doing. He's strategically and intentionally moving in such a way to where as he's having these gospel conversations, he's interfacing with real people, real time. He wants to inject it with the knowledge of God. This is the second part of his mission. He's unashamedly and thoughtfully communicating that Jesus is the necessary object of saving faith. Don't miss that. He is unashamedly and thoughtfully communicating the supremacy of the Lord Jesus. He is the necessary object of saving faith. And again, I know I'm I'm moving through this uh, for some a bit awkwardly. Hopefully you're able to track with me. Let's read down. Let's look at verse 32 because we're almost done. We think about our determination to make the gospel known. We look at how Paul is navigating uh, through different spaces and he's navigating through uh, just cultural engagement, particularly in Athens. We see in verse 32 that some, some mocked, right? Mocking is never a good thing, right? Yes, correct. <laughs> like, no, I mock all the time. No, mocking is not... <laughs> Mocking, yeah, mocking, don't, don't mock. Right? But some mocked, some sneered. Uh, they, they distanced themselves from what Paul was teaching. And I, and I think this, 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 little ins, this, this insertion uh, by, by Luke is a reminder for us as Christians uh, and our determination to make the gospel known and to actually engage culture. This is a reminder that mocking, it's par for the course. It happened to Paul. More than likely, in your determination to make the gospel known and to be engaging with culture, guess what? It's going to happen to you. And you need to have some thick skin, right? You need to have some thick skin. You need to know whom you have believed, right? And you need to remember who he is. But again, they mocked Paul. They certainly mocked our Lord Jesus. They mocked Paul. They'll mock us, right? And... And we think about just, again, just the, they're going to mock us. We think about just the mocking that's going to take place. I think if we're honest, uh, when it comes down to sharing the gospel, when it comes down to engaging culture, I think if we're honest, we don't like to be rejected. We'd rather be the car salesman that everybody says yes to. Yes, you buy that car. Yes. No, no, it doesn't happen like that. It's, It's process. Right? You have to do it over and over and over again. You've got to be strategic. You've got to be systematic. Right? You've got to have some courage. You've got to have some courage. And I think the question that we need to be thinking through is, you know, is, is, is Christ worth it? Now, obviously, I, it's, this Sunday morning, I'm sure I'll get a resounding, yes, Jesus is worth it. May I ask you that same question on Monday? Tuesday on through Saturday. Is Jesus worth it? And hopefully it'll still be a resounding yes. 
I love, I love how Luke ends this section. He draws our attention to what the fruit of faithfulness to the gospel looks like. Where he says in verse 32, but others said, we will hear you again about this. Don't miss that. Yeah, we've got the mockers. We've got folks who will distance themselves away from us, right? They'll say, okay, you're, you're a Christian, okay, but you're from this institution. But being a Christian means that you've just committed intellectual suicide. How could you, right? But Luke says, others said, we will hear you again. He doesn't just stop there. And he says that these men joined him and believed, right? These men... Let's just stop. And women joined him and believed. I want to end there. And uh, as we as we, we, we take some time uh, as I'm ending, make sure I have Paul's. There we go. As we take some time as as I'm ending and we think through Paul's Paul's motivation, his method, and his mission. Um, I think it's necessary and appropriate for us, Woodhaven, uh, to consider what the Lord would require of us in engaging the culture that he's placed us in within the downriver within the down river area. All right? What would the Lord require of us in the downriver area? All right? And I think there, there are three uh, considerations for application that I, I, I hope you'll take some time, maybe write this down and Certainly, we can have some conversations about these uh, in terms of how we're appropriating them uh, within the coming months. But the first is that our motivation for engaging culture must be driven by a preoccupation with the glory of God within the context that God has placed us in. You keep hearing me say that. I'm saying that for a reason. It's got to be driven by a preoccupation with God's glory. I know people need... We, pe- pe- there are needs that need to be that need to be met, right? There are needs that exist within a particular context, all contexts. That 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 man, it's like people are they're, they're they're hungry. Let's go feed them, right? They have no, let's go. They have no clothes. Let's go clothe them, right? And those are good things, but is it driven by a preoccupation with the glory of God? If not, it's going to fizzle out. Jesus fed some hungry folks, and guess what happened? All right. They didn't just stay with them. They peaced out. They left. <laughs> they left them. Yeah. The second uh, point of consideration for us, our method for engaging culture must display a willingness to interface with people and, inter- and interact, hear this, through a paradigm of gospel-driven humility and courage. We've got to have gospel-driven humility when we enter certain spaces. Stop coming in like the know-it-all, right? So sometimes it's just, it, the scripture says, be quick to listen and slow to speak. All the husbands in the room, amen that one, right? Yeah. <laughs> no, but for it, seriously, right? Be quick to listen and slow to speak. Have this paradigm of gospel-driven humility, but don't stop there. You need to have some courage. You need to, you need to proclaim. You need to say something. Right? And then lastly, our mission for engaging culture 
is to live unashamed of the gospel in our context as we thoughtfully and strategically bring to bear the knowledge of the true God. That's what, that's, that's what, we're, that's what we're, we're, we're intending to do. We want to bring to bear the knowledge of the true God in our business practices and in our parenting, in our marriages, in our singleness, in our retirement, wherever we are. However we navigate, we need to be intent on bringing to bear the knowledge of the true God. Uh, Woodhaven, my, 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 my hope and prayer is that as collectively as a body, that we would be uh, excited about these things, that we would be embracing these things, that we would be guided by the Spirit of God. And as we anchor ourselves in the Word of God, and we endeavor to be the people of God where he's placed us living on mission for his glory. And I'm not just saying that to wax eloquent, but saying that because that's got to be our heartbeat. Living on mission for his glory and displaying faithfulness and making, seriously making the gospel known. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And uh, so much more could be said. Um, that's a, that's a good place to stop. And there's, there's much that we need to be uh, chewing on, much that we need to be considering as we think about what it, what, it, what it means, what it looks like to make the gospel known within the downriver communities. Pray, God, that you would guide us in that endeavor. Walk with us in and through that endeavor, God unify us through those endeavors be glorified in and through it all as well pray that in jesus name amen